I'd love for you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Just kind of get settled in there, whether you need to flip a page or swipe along your way to Acts chapter 1. If you're using one of our Black Pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 924. In fact, if you're using your papal Bible or even one of your uh, digital Bibles, you might want to bookmark this because we're going to be in the book of Acts for probably seven or eight months. We'll take some breaks around Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and those kinds of things, but we're going to spend a long time working through the book of Acts. Something we have not done in a while is done a long book study together in our times of corporate worship. I'm going to start this morning, though, by showing you a picture. Do we have any art history majors in the group that recognizes that painting? That painting is called The Card Players. Really great title, right? The Card Players. And it was painted by a guy by the name of Paul Chazan, I think is how you pronounce his last name. must be French. I can't ever pronounce anything French. And, uh, And it was painted in 1892 or 1893. The claim to fame of this photo or this painting is that it is... It has sold for more money than any other painting in history. In 2011, the royal family of Qatar paid $250 million for that photo, for that painting. You guys want to outbid them? You might be able to get it. I mean, it's all right, I guess, right? Anyway, I'd rather have a signed autograph or something. No, anyways, but, you know, why do people spend so much money on masterpieces? Well, because they're masterpieces and they're originals. The copies aren't worth near as much as the originals, right? And with that, they seem to have this inherent value. I think that same concept applies to us as we begin our launch into the study of the book of Acts. We're going to go back and look at the masterpiece of God's design of the church. And we're going to get to see the original. We're going to go back and get a chance to look at our spiritual family of origin. And we're going to get a chance to look at faith the way it's supposed to be. And so over these upcoming months, as we make our way through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, and I'd really love to challenge you to read the book of Acts as we're moving through it together. Um, and, and actually, if, if you'll follow along and use the outlines that you have, and you just kind of keep those, by the time you get done, you're going to have like a running commentary on the entire book of Acts. It'd be just a wonderful thing to kind of have as a resource for you. But we're going to have a chance to go back and look at how faith emerged the way it was supposed to in the life of the followers of Christ, as we see in the book of Acts. And there's some great stuff. If we got some of our teenagers in here or our children, and you're thinking, ah, you know, reading this, they're kind of boring. There's some great stuff in the book of Acts. I mean, there are executions, and there are earthquakes, and there are shipwrecks, and there are prison breaks, and led by angels. There's all kinds of good stuff in there as you go along, you know? There's a lot of wonderful stuff to read as you see God working out faith in the life of His people. But before we really kind of jump into the text, there are just some things we have to cover. So I, I want you to indicate your desire to indulge me this morning as we go over some of the necessities so you, you kind of get, the, the, get the, the gist of the book of Acts as we launch into it, all right? And so let me read just the first few verses of, of, Luke, of Acts chapter 1. We'll come back later and read verses 1 through 11 because that's going to be our focal text today. But I just want to start with the first three verses right now. The book begins with these words. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until a day he was taken up after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
Now, these three verses tell us a lot of things that you and I need to know about the book of Acts if we're going to really understand it. If we're going to be able to see how faith is supposed to be, we need to understand some things about the first book of Acts. And the first one is that we need to understand that Acts is part two. (laughs) It's part two. Look how he begins. He says, I wrote the first narrative. Well, what's he referring to? He's actually referring back to the gospel of Luke. The book of Acts was written by Luke, the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. Every other book that we have in the New Testament was written by somebody from a Jewish background. Luke Acts is written by Luke, the one who accompanied Paul on his journeys, who was a Gentile, and by our best suspicions was a, was a, um, was a physician, you know, by that. Now, why is it in two volumes? Why don't we just have one big long thing? In fact, if you were going to go back and reorder the New Testament, you'd really go Matthew, Mark, John, Luke. And then you could put Acts, and it would kind of all fit together a little bit better. But somehow or another, they get separated, and we don't see those two. I mean, wh- wh- why why were they separated in the first place? And the only the only answer I can really give you is, you know, some of us who were old enough, remember when we used to have encyclopedias in the library, right? You know, there'd be 39 volumes in the library. Well, why didn't they just put all of that into one book? Because the book would be about eight feet high. You know, if back then they used scrolls. So imagine if they, he wrote all of this in one scroll, the scroll might have been 80 feet long. So you get up to read and you got to find the right section and you're twisting your way through 80 feet, you know? You, you never find it. So besides, it got really hard to, to maneuver that much stuff, so they broke it up into volumes. And this is the second volume. But we learned some things from Luke's introduction to his gospel. And I'd love for you to turn over to Luke chapter 1 with me. just want to look at the first four verses and bring a couple of things into, into focus for us. These works were written by Luke <coughs> to a gentleman by the name of Theophilus. And we see here in chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, the first four, four verses, his introduction. He said, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. He's talking about the life of Christ, the other uh, gospels. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything, from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. Now, Theophilus means God lover, somebody who's loved of God or the love of God. The word honorable there means he was probably somebody of position, of prominence. In all likelihood, he was a new convert to the faith. He took on the patronage. He paid for the costs of the production of the books and the copying of the books and the distribution of the books so that it could be educated. Now look at this, verse 4. He wrote these things, this orderly sequence, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Now Luke picks up and he writes the gospel and he follows with the book of Acts to make it clear that what happened in Christ was true, that it was certain. We're going to come back to that theme in just a minute. So we need to understand that Acts is part two. And we need to keep part one in mind as we read part two or somehow or another we miss out on the whole story. Now, the way these pieces fit together is this. The Gospel of Luke covers the earthly ministry of Jesus until it was completed. It ends with the ascension. The book of Acts covers the beginning of the church's ministry on earth. The Gospel of Luke takes comes from the birth of Christ all the way through his ascension, covering his death and resurrection. The book of Acts covers the history or the work of the church as it begins. Not as it ends, but as it begins. Very different there. Luke deals with what until he's taking up, taken up, 
And the idea is that Acts is what Christ does through the church after he was taken up. It's still the work of Christ. Some of the themes you're going to see there is that the Gospel of Luke shows redemption finished. And Acts shows evangelism beginning. And that says a lot about our faith. And somehow or another, the book of Acts is written to validate the account of what happened in the Gospel of Luke. Remember what he he wrote to Theophilus? He said, listen, I'm writing to you so that you can be certain of the things that you've understood. The reason why Acts is written, he's told this wonderful story about Jesus, right? In the Gospel of Luke, born of a virgin, lives a perfect life, does all these miracles, gets killed and you know, on the cross, resurrected. Now he's ascended into heaven. That's a great story. But all kinds of great stories are written that are just pure fiction. The validity of the power of what happened in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is validated by what happens through the people of God in the church. And boy, that's a great theme that we're going to chase out. That our lives, the way that faith works in our lives, validates the power of the cross. Interesting journey we're going to have together. Just one last thing. The Gospel of Luke shows Jesus moving to Jerusalem. The book of Acts shows the church moving out from Jerusalem. Following the outline of Acts 1.8. From Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So those are some of the necessities that we need to understand today. Now, let's read verses 1 through 11 together again. And I want to I want to follow a very complicated outline. I mean, I went to seminary. I studied lots of classes. I took lots of preaching classes. And I came up with a very sophisticated way of looking at the Scriptures. That is the what and the so what. So what does it say? And so what does it mean to us? And, and I think those are powerful things. That comes out. That really is the foundation of a lot of what we do as a church. What does the Bible say? And what does it mean to us practically? You guys aren't interested in my opinion. We're interested in what God has said. Our goal is for you to walk out of this place and walk out of your life groups with a better understanding of the Word of God. And with that, have a better understanding of what it means to your life. And so I want to just walk through, at least this week and most weeks, just the idea of what's the what and what's the so what. So let's follow along again. Let me pick up with verse 1 so we get a nice continuity as we go through all of this. It says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, but all that Jesus began to do and teach, and until the day he was taken up. Again, the life of Christ while he's on the earth. After he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proof, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Do you remember John John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, you know, he was baptizing people at, at the Jordan River, and he saw Jesus, says, I baptize you with, you with water, but there's one coming who's going to baptize you with water and with fire kind of idea. And and as we're going to see in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit's going to come represented by fire. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took them out, it took him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. 
May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, let's run through some what's, okay? Now, I, I, I'll admit some of this is just stuff we've got to get underneath our belts if we're going to really understand what the Scripture teaches. So what's the role of this passage? What, what is it that God's trying to communicate to us? And the, the message here is that in this 40-day period, Jesus completes his preparation of the, of the disciples for their task, okay? By implication, he also completes his preparation of us for our task. Now, there's a couple things in here I want you to see. Jesus is finishing his preparation of the disciples for, his, for their missional task. We see that in several ways. Verse 3, he appears to them and he gives them many convincing proofs, okay? This word that you have in there is actually a technical legal word for evidence. This is material evidence, if you will. So what is their role supposed to be? To be witnesses, right? So when they get plucked up on the witness stand of life and somebody's really pressuring them, you sure you just didn't see a ghost? You sure you weren't imagining things? You sure you didn't misunderstand? Maybe it was somebody who looked like him. Maybe it was. Maybe he just kind of came, was resuscitated out of the grave. And You know what? They're able to sit there and say without a... A shadow of doubt in their minds because they're absolutely convinced as his witness. That was the resurrected Christ I saw. This word 40, the 40-day period, this is the only place in the Bible we tell us how long Jesus was on the planet. He was kind of coming and going, but he was on the planet after his resurrection. <clears throat> what we understand is that there were 50 days between the time of the crucifixion and the day of Pentecost. Three days for his resurrection, 40 days that he appeared to them. That's 43 days. And then there's about a week between chapter 1 and chapter 2, <laughs> okay? In book of Acts. The word, the number 40 there is very significant. You know, we just did the 40 days in the word. Why did we do 40 days? Because the word 40, the number 40 has a level of significance from the scriptures. Moses was on the mountain with God for 40 days. Elijah was on the mountain with God in Mount Hort for 40 days. But more particular, I want you to remember this. How long was Jesus tempted for in the wilderness? 40 days. What was God doing with Jesus during those 40 days? preparing him for his ministry. Jesus spends 40 days with the disciples. Why? He's preparing them for their ministry. And when the 40 days comes, it's finished. They're ready, okay? You also see that he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And he's giving them commands. Wait in Jerusalem. When you receive the Spirit, go be my witnesses. All of this stuff that we're looking at in terms of preparation is powerful for us as we, we go through our spiritual journey. Being convinced of the truth. Letting God complete His preparation of us. His equipping of us for our role. Teaching. <coughs> being taught about the kingdom and, and following Christ's commands. See, God is always preparing us for ministry. So that's, that's part of the main emphasis of this text. That Jesus is preparing the disciples for their missional role. Secondly, this text emphasizes that in order for the church to fulfill its role in the world, it must be in communion with God, in relationship with God, a relationship that's experienced through the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It says, you know, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, what, how do you receive power? Well, we, when the disciples were with Jesus on the planet, they experienced the presence or the power of God through the presence of Jesus. Now he's gone. Going to ascend into heaven in just a few verses. 
But when the Holy Spirit comes, they're going to experience the presence of Christ, the presence of God in their lives through the Spirit. And with that, they're going to have the power to do what it is that God has called them to do. Now, I I want you to understand just one thing about this word power. There's a lot of stuff we can say about this, but I think our expectations of God are way too low in the 21st century in America. Way too low. And, And here's what I want you to understand. I mean... This word power is actually used throughout the Gospels to describe the miracles of Jesus. What what God is promising us is miracle-working power. And it's not a a miracle-working power to make our lives better. It's a miracle-working power to let our lives be witnesses for Christ. We'll leave that there for now. (laughs) Another part of the what from this passage is the role of the church in the work of God. And that is to be Christ's witnesses. It says, you shall be my witnesses. That is the role of the church. It is the role of the followers of Christ on the planet is to be Jesus's witnesses. Now, we'll have a chance to talk about this a lot. But that's what he's saying. Listen, I've, I've been preparing you. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And your task then is to go out and to be my witnesses, right? That's the task. Now, what I want you to see here is this word witness actually comes from the Greek word that we get the word martyr from. It's the word that, the underlying this word witness is the word martyr, martus in the Greek. We get the word martyr from it. Who is a martyr? A martyr is somebody who gives up their life for a cause, right? To be a witness for Christ, you've got to give up your life for a cause. If any man must, would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You must put off the old self and put on the new self. We'll have a chance to pursue that as we go. You and I cannot witness to the cause of Christ until we die and Christ lives within us. Got to be martyrs. Got to be martyrs. I want you to see here too, this is a part of the what. We are going to get to the so what in just a minute. Another part of the what, you understand this text, is that the focus throughout the entire book of Acts, like the Gospels, is the kingdom of God. How, do, how does, what is Jesus speaking to the disciples about? He's speaking to them about the kingdom of God, right? He's teaching them and he's speaking to them about the kingdom of God, which obviously prompts in verse 6 a question from the disciples. They say, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Now, most Israelis at this point, they, they, it was just, you know, sometimes getting out of your paradigm, getting out of the context you're in is just almost, the, they were just really wrestling to break away from the concept that the kingdom of God is it broke into the world somehow or another was going to restore Israel to its prominence. Now listen, Israel had been under political domination for 700 years. Now that sounds like a small number, but 700 years. How old's our country? We're not even 250 years old. So take the United States' generation, multiply it by three, and you get an idea about how long they've been. And they're just longing to have nobody bossing them around as a nation, you know? Now, this is not a big country. It's about 40 miles wide, maybe, maybe a, you know, 120 miles north to south kind of thing. It's not a, not a big country. But at one point in time, they had a tremendous influence in the Middle East under the periods of David and, and Solomon. And they, they were longing for those days. And so they said, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom? Now, I want to come back and talk about the nature of the kingdom in just a minute. But with your fingers stuck in Acts 1, I want you to turn over to the end of the book of Acts. Chapter 28, the 30 verse verse. I'm not going to read it for you, but I want to point out something to you. The book ends with Paul in Rome under house arrest, waiting for his trial before Caesar. And while he's waiting under house arrest, he's able to have people come and go. And what, what is, what is Paul proclaiming? All his hardships? He's trying to, he's trying to influence the jury to get out of, get out of jail. 
What is it? He's proclaiming what? The kingdom of God. See that in verse 31? Proclaiming the kingdom of God. Book ends with Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. Begins there. It ends with Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God in a place where the, where the message of the kingdom can reach anywhere on the planet because Rome is the center of the universe. And in between, you have the message about how people enter into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God, by responding to the proclamation of the gospel. The book of, of Acts is all about the proclamation of the kingdom. It's what it's about. Jesus was teaching it. Paul's proclaiming it at the end. And in between, we see people entering into the kingdom through their response to the proclamation of the gospel, which is significant for our role on this planet. The kingdom here is not about nationalistic control, but it really flows out of what we see at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is about the will of God being done in the lives of individuals. And it's about the will of God being done on the globe. And the book of Acts is about how that happens. And it's through the proclamation of the events of the life of Christ through the individual lives of those who walk with him. One last what before we move on to so what. In verses 9 through 11, you have an incredible event. Here are the disciples. They're standing on, on the Mount of Olives, right? Which is just to the east of Jerusalem. They have this tremendous view of the Temple Mount. The, the, the old city lays out to, to, the, to the south, um, just to their left. And, and they're up there, and, and Jesus literally is taken up into heaven. Complete with a divine cloud coming and taking them and carrying them away into heaven, right? And while they're standing there looking at it saying, I, I want to make sure I get my Polaroid of this. I don't want to ever forget this. You know, I want to remember what it looks like. These two guys in white robes show up. Angels, obviously. They say, well, Men of Galilee, why are you guys standing around looking into heaven? Said so this Jesus that you saw, he's going to come back the exact same way. And applied in that message are two things. One is an incredible word of hope, great word of hope. Just like the book of Acts tells us that Jesus' life didn't end with death, our life doesn't end with death either. There's a time when Jesus is coming back and it's all going to change. And really our lives are eternal. That's a tremendous word of hope. But, but in the phrasing of the way they put this, in the midst of this word of hope, is also a great word of accountability. It says, you know, why are you guys standing around looking after Jesus? Don't you know he's going to come back? And when he comes back, he's going to ask you, what you been up to? <laughs> you know? And Jesus had told lots of parables in his teaching, in the Gospel of Luke and, and the other Gospels, saying, you know what? The kingdom is like, you know, the master goes away on his long journey, and he leaves his servants in charge of the house. And when he comes back, what is he going to find them doing? Are they going to be about the master's business, or are they going to be about their own business? And there's a tremendous word of accountability in there. Who, whose business are we about, you know? All right. So I'd love to take questions, but I can't. You can ask me out in the lobby. Am I too fired up? Did I have too much coffee this morning? Sorry. All right. So let's deal with some so what. We, we've seen what the text is communicating to us. Now let's look at the so what. What are some things that we can take away? And first of all, I want you to understand that the, the vital, essential, indispensable role of obedience in experiencing God's promises in our lives. In the midst of all this exchange between Jesus and the disciples, we don't miss out on the fact that he says, listen, hey, listen, stay in Jerusalem, right? Stay in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. How does the, how does the angel address, the angels address these guys? They call them men of Galilee, right? The impression we get, especially as you look at some of the resurrection appearances of Jesus and stuff, is that these guys, they were having a hard time staying in Jerusalem. They wanted to get home. Let's get out of the city. Let's get away from the authorities. Let's get home to where we know and where we, where we feel more, most comfortable. Let's get back to Galilee. So they're going off to Galilee. And then Jesus sends them back to Jerusalem. They go off to Galilee. He sends them back to Jerusalem. He said, listen, stay in Jerusalem until you receive the power. 
You know, obedience is absolutely, incredibly essential for us to experience God's promises in our lives. We, we, we almost always live our lives, if you will, in such a way that, that you know, we, we just kind of want to be able to go wherever we want to go and then say, okay, okay, God, now I want you to fulfill your promises to me. And, and most of us are convinced that if we could just change our circumstances, where we live, the job we're in, the relationship we're in, how much money we have, our, you know, whatever, if we could just change our circumstances, our problems would go away. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It's being obedient in the context of where we are that we actually experience the fullness of God's promises in our lives. Never forget my, my first day of seminary. It was at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in, in Fort Worth, you know. And so it was kind of the convocation or the opening kind of day for the, all the new students. And so the president, Dr. Russell Dilday, addressed the group. You know, and you, first day of seminary, you knew it was going to be a lot different than college. I, you know, you kind of went, but you thought you were going to hear this just inspiring message. You know, and Dr. Dilday was, was a, a godly man, had a great heart, man of great integrity, great, great ministry that God did through him. And I'm, I'll never forget, he stood up and he said, listen, he said, seminary is not a place to get well. He said, if you're broken, just because you changed your address to Seminary Hill does not mean that you're going to get fixed. He said, so if you're broken, you need to go get fixed, then come back. And there were a lot of people who showed up at seminary thinking, I can get over my sin problem if I just get off to seminary. doesn't happen that way. Changing your zip code, changing your circumstances, changing your marriage relationship, changing your job, those, it's not going to fix your problems. Obedience is the context in which we experience the promises of God. This next one, the so what. I hope you get it, because I'm still figuring it out, but I'm hoping you get it. But we need to understand that faith is mission-based. We often think faith is belief-based. We think faith is experiential. It's about what I can experience from God. Biblically, faith is, go be my witnesses. Go be my witnesses. You've got the Spirit. You've heard my teachings. You know about the kingdom. You know all that stuff, so you can be convinced. Go be my witnesses. Mission-based. Task-based. You and I probably have no bigger place where we stumble in experiencing God's best in our lives than this very fact. Because we make faith about something we want God to do for us rather than faith being God's preparation of us to do what He's always designed, which is to be His witness. Another way to say the same thing is that faith is always focused on the coming of the kingdom. It's always focused on the coming of the kingdom. It's about God's will being done in you and then on the planet through the way we live our lives. That'll shake up your daily routine. (laughs) All right, I could go on. We'll leave it there. (coughs) I also want you to understand (coughs) what this passage means to us is we see the crucial role of the Spirit in living victoriously. You, you, you want to live with power. You want to live with victory. You want to live with celebration. You want to live with joy. You want to live with hope. You want to live a life of significance. You see any of that kind of stuff. You've got to live in the power of the Spirit. C- can't do life in God without the power of the Spirit in your life. And we're, again, we're going to have a lot to talk about. You know, and I got to tell you, you know, there are a lot of times in my life as I kind of came through high school and college and off to seminary, you'd hear these little pithy sayings that you'd pick up in Sunday school class and you'd say, eh, you know, those are really nice little quips, but you know, eh, you know, I, that's just too, that's just too trite, if you will. You know, one of those I heard, first time I ever heard it was in college and it was one of these, the, the, the woman who, who first, I first heard it from, one of these touchy feely kind of ladies, which is really not my style. 
know all that much, you know, but anyways, but so, you know, and she said, you know, we just need to let God by letting go, you know, just got to drop the D (laughs) is the way she put it, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, that's just an oversimplification, but really in many ways it's not because the primary barrier to the work of the spirit of my life and your life is the fight for control in our lives. We we, we fight because we want to do life our way and somehow or another experience God's blessings and power and behind it. And there's somehow or another where God is just, Jesus is saying, you know what? You got to get it from the very beginning that you got to let go. I'm in control. (laughs) You know, what what did he say to Peter? You know, I don't know where I'm going to send you, but you're going, you know, kind of idea. We got to let go and let God take control. Got one more, then we'll be done. And, and this is a message in, uh, buried in this text. No, that's not the right way. What overarches this whole text? God has designed our lives as the children of God to change the world. You and I, individually, corporately, are supposed to change the world. What, what is what, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God coming, right? He said, guess what? God's going to do that, but you've got a role to play. I'm going to finish equipping you. I'm going to give you the power, but then it's your job to go out and change the world by witnessing to me. How many days do you and I climb out of bed, stick our feet on the floor and say, God's going to change the world today through me? Most of us think, I just hope I survive till I can climb back into this bed at the end of the day, you know? And, and, and we hope that comes, you know, you know, sooner rather than later kind of idea. We don't want it to be one of those 19-hour days, you know? You know, that kind of idea. God has designed you and I to be world changed. You know, I, I, Christina picked out this imagery for the series. You know, and, and as I was looking at it earlier this week, I said, what a great picture. Because many of us, we won't even ever venture out onto the wooden bridge. Just leave me on, <laughs> leave me on the edge of the cliff, you know? And I'll just take, I'll just watch other people go across. And God said, you know, I want you out there. Because I've designed you to be someone who changes the world. I got three challenges I'd like to ask you to take on today. One, I, I, I'd like to challenge you just to read through the book of Acts once a month. It's only 28 chapters. You know, it, it, you don't have to read it every day. Just once a month, read through the book of Acts. There's going to be something powerful about reading the book over and over again as we study it. And if you're willing to take that commitment today, just write, just write Acts right on your connection card. You know, I know several of our life groups are actually going to debrief the sermons as a part of their life group experience. You, you, know, you need to be reading along for that. Secondly, I, I'm not, you know, we can get all excited. I just, I just want you to be honest or sincere or authentic and saying, saying to God, show me how you want me to change my life. So we walk through this journey. God, show me how you want me to change my life. Show me how you want me to change. Show me how you, you want me to change. And I'm asking you to take on that as a commitment, to be honest, to be sincere and saying to God, how does my life need to be different in order to be more usable? And lastly, I want to ask, I want to invite you, that's the right, not challenge, but invite you to let the kingdom of God come in you. Let the kingdom of God, let the rule of God come into your life. Let's pray together. There's ways that you can do this right, right on the back side of your connection card. For some of you, you've never experienced the kingdom. And you can step into the kingdom today just by placing your faith in Christ and asking God to forgive you based upon what Jesus did on the cross. And you can just check off on the back side. I want to become a follower of Christ. I want to choose to be a believer today. God, we thank you for the message of Acts. There's a lot of things you want to learn, teach us through this journey about how faith's supposed to be. God, perhaps the, the most sincere or may, maybe the simplest way to put the most profound requests before you is this. Raise our expectation. Raise our expectation of what you want to do in us and through us because of who Jesus is and because of the place of the Spirit. Within. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite our worship team to come and lead us in our closing song. If you feel like you want to pray or so, I'll be here at the front, but let's stand and sing to the God 
who raised his son and brought him into heaven 